that's that sorted out. Okay, put your hands up if you had most trustworthy as the church. Not very good. Most trustworthy as the police. Most trustworthy as politics. Media. Okay, that's fine. Okay, that's very good. Okay, least trustworthy. Uh, church. Okay. Politics. Police. Media. Okay, there we are. That's a bit of a sort of... That's fine. Okay, we're not going to do that. I actually, in one sense, it's a bit of a trick question. And the reason why it's a bit of a trick question um, is that actually all four of those institutions have seen a decline in trust over the last five or ten years. I mean, it kind of all started a bit in the 1960s with the end of a kind of deference culture. But actually all of them have been affected by scandals in the last five or ten years. So kind of politics has been affected by the expenses scandal, which saw the sort of trust in politicians to an all-time low. Um, police have been hugely affected by recent stories concerning um, like the, the made-up comments about Andrew Mitchell, the chief whip. Um, the financial scandals in the city of London have meant that the financial services industry have taken a huge hit in terms of trust. But also that's affected the church. The sexual abuse uh, perpetrated by clergy, by vicars, has uh, rightly shocked many. Before we think that's just the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, it's happened in the Church of England too. And the accusation that's remained that the church has covered up abuse rather than rooted out has affected trust in all institutional churches. And I hear that on the street and talk to people about it. We must recognise that the, the church, despite what we put our hands up for the number one, the church is not uh, as trusted as it once was. And therefore, that creates a challenge if we're going to say, I believe in the church. Uh, that's what the Apostles' Creed uh, is asking us to do. If you're visiting uh, or new here this evening, uh, a really warm welcome. Let me explain what we're doing this term to give a bit of a picture. We're working our way line by line through the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of the Christian faith. It's really early. It goes back to... Uh, um, about 1800 years ago. And what we've done is work through line by line. We've looked at God the Father who made the world. Uh, we looked at Jesus, his son, who uh, came to earth as a baby, who died on the cross, who rose again, ascended, is seated at the right hand and will one day come again. And we looked at the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who uh, gives us power when we are weak. Uh, and now we look at what it means to say, I believe in the church. But I think if we're honest, given our kind of contemporary culture, that's a phrase that needs quite a little, little bit of explaining. Actually, it gets more complex than that, because the line in the creed is actually, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And that probably sets a whole set of other questions going. You're like... I, What's this without the Catholic Church? What are we doing believing in that when we're Church of England? It's like a Manchester City supporter cheering for Manchester United. It just doesn't kind of work. And what's this about the communion of saints? I mean, if the only thing you notice about this church is it's not plastered with pictures or statues of saints and we don't pray to them. So what's that all about? So we've got quite a little bit of work cut out if we're going to understand what this means. I'm up for that work if you are. Let me suggest a way forward. What we're going to do first of all tonight is I'm going to propose a kind of big picture approach to understanding the church. What it isn't and what it is. And I'm going to give you a one word summary. And then we're going to take those three difficult words from the creed, holy, catholic and communion, 
and work out what they mean about the church today. I'm going to be referring to a number of Bible passages, so you'll need to kind of do a bit of marsupial sort of Bible reading. That means bouncing from one passage to the next. Uh, so um, it's a bit of a Bible test, but we'll get her going. There's a, a batting order that's uh, white that says where we're going, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have a great time together. The first thing I want us to notice is what is not meant by the word church in the creed. Okay, This is what it doesn't mean. Okay, the word does not refer to an institution or an organisation like the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of England. We're not being called to express our faith in a human organisation. Okay. Secondly, it doesn't refer to a building like the one we're sitting in now. So believing in the church is not about believing in bricks and mortar, good though they may be. And the word church does not refer to a service, as in I'm off to church. I mean, it does mean that, but that's not what it means here. We're not saying here that I believe in the 630. Okay, so so what is behind the term church here? Well, at its most basic level, the word church refers to people. That's what church means. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Corinth in about AD 55, he wasn't talking about a building or an institution. Uh, He was talking about people. Um, But that phrase needs further clarification. And as I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those three words from the Apostles' Creed and kind of help us unpack what sort of people are being described here. Uh, First of all, I'm going to take the word holy and suggest that says we should see that as people on a journey. Secondly, I'm going to take the word Catholic and I'm going to say that helps us see the church as people who are part of many. And thirdly, I'm going to take the word communion and help us see that the church is people who are together around Jesus Christ. Okay, and there'll be some application for us as we go along. Uh, So first of all, holy. What's it mean to say we believe in a holy church? I've already suggested that we can't say that's the case, simply from looking at what's going on and what sadly has gone on. And if you're a Christian tonight, you know that's not true of you, that you're not always holy or pure all the time. So what does it mean to describe the church as holy? Well, to answer that question, I want to point you to a little paragraph, a little sentence hidden away at the beginning of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. So it's 1 Corinthians, it's on page 1144. It's just one verse, but it's really helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, 1144 in our Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 2, look at me. Look with me at it. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. So to the church of God, uh, that's what he's writing, these believers in Corinth. And he describes them as sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Well, actually, the translation gets in the way a bit here because that word sanctified comes from the same root as the word holy. It's actually the same word that's being played around with here. So Paul is actually saying to the church of God in Corinth, those who are made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. That's how he describes them. Made holy and called to be holy. What's going on there? Well, let's take the made holy first. What Paul is saying is that he's saying to these believers, you have been made holy by Jesus Christ. In other words, they were sinners. They were people like you and me who loused up, who put ourselves in the centre instead of the God who made us. That's what they were like. But something special had happened. They'd recognised that while they were not pure or holy, Jesus was. And they recognised that not only was he pure and holy, but he actually went to the cross 
to take on himself all the impurities and the unholy things of their lives. And he took that on himself and he died for them on the cross. And they'd realize that. And because that was the case, they were forgiven and they were declared holy. They were not condemned and they were pure. Actually, there's a picture in our reading from Revelation 7. You don't have to turn to it, but let me just describe it to you. There's a picture that kind of helps us get that. Because the picture in the, in the picture of heaven describes all these saints wearing white robes. Now, white robes represent purity. Yeah, they represent uh, holiness. But these white robes that all these believers are, are wearing, they're not robes that they've kind of made themselves or earned themselves. They've been given by Jesus. And in particular, they've been made possible by his blood, by his death on the cross. So it's almost a case that when a person becomes a Christian, they are given a white robe to wear. And that's a symbol of being forgiven and loved and declared holy. Now underneath, you're still wearing your grubby old clothes and uh, you're, you're not kind of perfect. But Jesus looks at you and says, you're holy because you believed in the one who died for you. That is the way in which the church can be described as made holy. Not made perfect, but declared holy by Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross. And the second part is the church is called to be holy. In other words, to use the robe illustration, they're they're kind of called to act in a way that's consistent with their clothes. Yeah, They're called to kind of act out what they look like. They're called to kind of... uh, be pure in their thoughts and actions, to put God in the centre, to conform their words and deeds to the one who loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them. They're called to kind of move towards the holy example of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Almost live up to your clothes. Yeah, That's the church, therefore. Should we just get that in our heads? By describing the church as holy, that doesn't mean it's full of perfect people. You'll be glad to hear. What it does mean, it's full of people who have been declared holy through Jesus and who are called to be and become holy. In other words, it's forgiven people who are in the process or on the journey of transformation. It is full of broken people who are in the process of being put back together again. That is what the church is. When you describe it as holy, it is forgiven people on a journey of transformation. Now, if you're new here in church tonight, or if you're just exploring the Christian faith, that might come to you as a bit of a surprise. Because you might think that with the church nationally taking a, a stand on certain moral issues where society has moved away from what the Bible teaches, you might think the church therefore thought of itself as better than others. But the church is not about people who are better than others. It's about people who've been forgiven, who've been given white robes to wear, not that they deserve or have earned, but by Jesus Christ. And who are on a journey of living out that passion for holiness. You see, describing the church as holy is not a a badge of superiority. It's a recognition that we needed somebody to make us holy. And we're on a journey with him praying to be changed by the Holy Spirit day by day. That's what it means to believe in the Holy Church. Now let me just speak to you tonight, if you're somebody who 
has never really started a journey with Jesus Christ because you think there's something that disqualifies you. Perhaps it's something in your past or your present. Perhaps something about your lifestyle or anything else about you. You just need to recognise, if that's you, please think again. Because you don't have to be perfect to start a journey with Jesus Christ. You just need to recognise that you need forgiveness and that he can give it to you. And when you're given a white robe, it doesn't mean that you become perfect overnight. You don't join a community of perfect people. You join a community of people who are on a journey of transformation. Who are trying and seeking to be holy, but who are making mistakes along the way. But let me talk to you if that's not you, but let me talk to you if actually you think you've already arrived. So you're the type of person who, when we had the kind of moment of confessing your sins earlier on in the service, you couldn't really think of anything to confess. Uh, You you find it hard to think of anything you've done wrong. You find it quite easy to think of things that other people have done wrong, particularly the person sitting next to you, but but not you. And, and, And I think if I'd say that to you, I think if there's a one more certain sign that you haven't arrived, it's the belief that you have. Holiness, you see, is not about avoiding certain little sins, but it's about a wholehearted desire for God, a worthy response to the one who's laid down for us. You see, being part of a church, a holy church, is both really easy and really hard. It's really easy because all you have to do is accept that Jesus can give you a white robe. And it's really hard because it never finishes. There is never a day when we don't need to pray, Holy Spirit, Please expose my sin and take me along a journey of holiness with you. There's not a day when we don't need to pray that. That's what it means to believe in a holy church. People who have been made holy and are called to be holy. So we're on a journey. That's the first mark of the church. The second is that word Catholic. And I want to suggest that says that we are a church who are part of many others. Because the word Catholic comes, small c by the way, the word Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, which means uh, universal. So when somebody describes, oh, he's very Catholic in his tastes, it doesn't mean he likes the Pope. Um, it means he likes all sorts of things, you know, likes to eat all sorts of things, really. And so when we say we believe in the Catholic Church, small c, we're not saying we believe in the denomination that is the Roman Catholic Church, but rather the universal people of God throughout history and throughout the world today. And you get a little bit of a sense of that in the description we had from Revelation 7 of the saints worshipping in heaven. Um, and in verse 9 we heard of the great multitude which no one can count from every nation, tribe, people language, and language. And the picture here is just of the enormous scope and reach of the church across every border and division. Now that kind of Catholicity, that universality of the church kind of reinforces what I was saying just now about it's, it's a place for everybody. But it also demonstrates the fact that church exists on a far bigger spectrum than I often allow. We need to lift our eyes beyond just what's happening in this congregation or even this church to see what God has been doing in his people throughout history and throughout the world today. 
Let's take history first. When I was taught this at college, it, it was taught church history, which sounds impossibly dull, doesn't it? I mean, can you think of a more dull subject? Um, uh, but, but actually, it's really interesting because it's the story of God and his work in people over the years. It's the story of people who have run the life of faith, who fought the faith, who've finished holding fast to Jesus Christ. And they're wonderful stories. I love the stories of the Reformation that occurred in this country, particularly in the 16th century. People like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English for the first time and was killed for doing so. Or Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, whose passion was to bring the Bible back into the centre of the church's worship. Or people like Bishop Hugh Latimer, who was burned at the stake in Oxford with Bishop Nicholas Ridley and said as the flames started to lick around his feet, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. You can go to the Pizza Express in Broad Street in Oxford and have a pizza in the room where Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer spent their last night before they were burned at the stake. That'll add your extra frisson to your four seasons. <laughs> these are wonderful saints of glory who have fought the faith. Um, we've got these great series of books for Sam called Trailblazers. Um, uh, we can bet on the bookstore, little books that tell the stories of Christians throughout the ages, uh, missionaries and doctors and politicians and preachers. Um, Sam loves them, he laps them up, and it's just a great way in which he's getting to know about the Catholic Church, the church universal throughout history. Uh, can I really encourage you to, to read a Christian biography of somebody who's not alive this summer? Find a book. We've got a number on the bookshelf. Uh, if uh, perhaps find one in an area where you're interested, it might be a sportsman or a, uh, an activist or a teacher or, or whatever. Find one that attracts you and read it. Because I think there's a huge irony that in our data-rich society, where we have more information available than ever before, we know less about what God has done in the past than ever before. And we have a responsibility, if we believe in the Catholic Church, to find out what God has done before. But it's not just about the Catholic Church then, but also the Catholic Church now, the universal church that stretches across the world. It's the most amazing truth that today, in virtually every country throughout the world, people have been gathering together to worship the same Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them in buildings like this, some of them in mega churches, some of them under shelter of just a tarpaulin in the open air, some of them in secret in-house churches. I got a sense of that. I'll never forget when I went to the Lausanne Congress in Cape Town in 2010. It was a meeting of uh, church uh, Christians throughout the world, 4,000 people from virtually every country, reckoned to be the most diverse gathering of Christians the world has ever seen. And I remember the final worship service on the last evening as we sang songs in all sorts of languages, as we shared communion together. And then I just remember singing Crown Him With Many Crowns, one of my favourite hymns. Uh, and just that sense of, wow, we are worshipping with people in every tongue. And we won't see those people again till glory. But that sense of the universal church across the world, it's not just about what's going on here in Claygate. It's the church is Catholic 
universal throughout the world. And I guess I want us to encourage us to engage with that worldwide church. Why? Well, first of all, because they need our prayers. People like Miriam Ibrahim, who was rearrested this week in Sudan, trying to leave. Her crime was to marry a Christian. And although she's now in the US Embassy, her fate is still far from certain. Or Christians in Iraq or Syria or basically anywhere in the Middle East where it's the Christians who are really at the sharp end of so many of these conflicts. I know a number of us wrote letters to persecuted Christians through that Christian Solidarity Worldwide uh, initiative that we did at Easter. Uh, Let's continue to pray for them if we wrote to them. If you haven't written to them yet... um, Uh, and it's still on your to-do list, it's not too late, you can do it now. There's information in the foyer. But the second reason why we need to engage with the Catholic Church is because we need their example. We need their example of standing up for faith when actually it becomes uncomfortable to do that, when other people believe different things. Next week we're going to be hearing from Simon and Kath Winchcombe about their work in the Middle East um, and how Christians are standing up for Faith in Amman in Jordan. You see, I don't think we can sing as we did earlier, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, without actually engaging with what God has done in the past and engaging with what he's doing today. I think that's kind of what it means to be a Christian, you know. If we believe in the Catholic Church, we need to engage with that and learn from it. So we've seen that the church is people on a journey. That's the holy bit. We've seen the church is actually part of a bigger community. That's the Catholic bit. Now, as we look at the word communion, we see it's actually people gathering together around Jesus. Uh, And uh, I want to just unpack that word communion of saints. It's true that in some traditions the word communion of saints is taken to refer to a particular body of people in heaven who have a particular capacity to pray or intercede for those below here on earth. Um, that's not the only reading of the phrase, and I don't think it's a biblical one. We saw earlier that saints actually just means holy ones. It means every Christian who's been made holy by Jesus. So I take the communion of saints to actually just be another way of describing the church. But the interesting thing in the creed is it kind of affirms the togetherness of those body of believers, their communion, because the word communion comes from the same root as common. It describes a group of people who have something in common, i.e. Jesus Christ. Uh, and yes, okay, it's a group of people who've individually made a response to Jesus, but it's their togetherness that really matters. Uh, and I think that's hugely important in, in our culture, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I think we live in a culture which is increasingly individualised where we sort of perceive things through the life of an individual rather than the life of a community. Uh, And I think that affects the way we express our faith. So faith is something primarily private. So I'll talk about my faith or my beliefs or my spirituality. And expressing that faith corporately, I with others, is seen as something that's only there for people who are really keen have a bit of a cost option, really. You, you know, if you're really keen, you might do it corporately, but primarily it's something you do on your own. Um, that's a real challenge with that, because that's not how faith is seen in the Bible. The Bible sees faith responding to Jesus as something both individual and corporate all the time. So yet it's about a personal response to Jesus, but it's lived out in fellowship with other believers. 
because it's in fellowship where God works in ways that he doesn't when we're on our own. It's in worship with others that God really lifts our eyes to him. It's in prayer with others where kind of God often just perhaps gives a word or assures us of his presence. It's in learning with others where kind of God sharpens our thinking. And it's in suffering with others where kind of God reaches out with arms of love. Tim Keller, who's um, a very respected New York pastor, says this. He says, there is no more important means of discipleship, that is the formation of Christian character, than deep involvement in the life of the church, the Christian community. And perhaps you've heard it said, perhaps you've, people have said it to you, you can be a Christian and not go to church. Yeah? You heard that? And the answer is, well, yes, theoretically you can. Being a Christian is about expressing a faith in Jesus Christ. But I suppose I put it in the same category as saying you can play cricket holding the bat with one arm. Colin Cowdery did it once, but that's not the way it's meant to be played. Yeah, it's theoretically possible, but that's not what is meant to happen. God's plan for his people was for them to be a community of believers who come together in communion and in fellowship. And when we say the creed, when we talk about the communion of saints, we say we believe that's the case. And I suspect there's probably a challenge there for us as the priority we give in our lives to shared time together with other Christians, whether that's being part of a small group or YF or or Sunday worship. Is it kind of the first thing that goes in the diary? Or is it the thing that kind of just gets slotted in if there's nothing else on, a bit of a blank, I'll go to church? And let me say a word to those of us who've recently been doing exams or are going to be going through exams. I think it's really important um, that church isn't just something we do when we feel like it. I feel like going to church today. I don't feel like going to church today. I think there's something about a discipline of being committed to God's people that's really important that we do it regularly. Um, Because I I, I think there's something about being part of the church, which is not a kind of thing that's based on whether we feel like it or not, but actually that's part of where we belong. I don't decide whether to kind of make Annabelle a cup of tea in the morning. It's all not feeling. That's just what I do because I'm her husband. Uh, and kind of being part of God's people, that's just what we do, because that's what it means to belong to Jesus. Uh, we've had to work through this with Sam, because um, we've had the whole sport on a Sunday thing and all that sort of stuff, which is really tough. But Annabelle and I have tried to set an example that we're committed to church, not just because um, that is the vicar, but actually for us it's a really important part of belonging to Jesus. If we belong to Jesus, we also belong to his people. And kind of for us, that gives us a really high priority. Um, so I guess that's been my message this evening, that when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, we're not saying that we believe in an institution, but actually we believe in something that God is doing in his people. We believe in God's plan for his people. Because by God's grace, we are the church, m- declared holy by Jesus Christ, and called to be holy, with many others throughout history and the world today, and coming together regularly in fellowship around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I think what it means to believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Let me give us, therefore, four questions to think about as we finish. Question number one is this. Do we recognise that there is space for us on the journey 
as part of the church? Do we believe that actually you don't have to be perfect? You just need to recognize there's somebody who can forgive you. And you can be part of that journey. That might be you tonight. But actually you can join the journey of God's people, not because you're very, very good, but because God loves you very, very much. Question number two. Within that journey of God's people, will you take seriously the call to holiness? Will you take seriously the call to live out the colour of the robes that you're wearing? The white robes. And will you pray every day, Holy Spirit, please show me more today what it means to be holy for you? Question number three. Will you engage with the Catholic Church, the Universal Church, by learning from the saints in the past and by praying for the worldwide church today? Will we lift our eyes beyond what's happening here to what God has done and what God is doing? And fourthly, will we give priority to the communion of saints? That is the fellowship of God's people, that is God's plan for worship, learning and reaching the world with the love of Jesus. Not just here, but when we go to university or college, will we make that a priority? Because that's part of what it means to belong to God, is to belong to his people. Let me pray for us as we think those questions through. Perhaps you just want to pray for the Holy Spirit to guide you in whichever question he wants to lay on your heart now. And perhaps just in a moment of quiet, you want to bring your own response to to our loving Heavenly Father in prayer.